0: Thank you, Jane. Thanks for being here. Um, so, something I'm involved in is an organization called Harbor Ministries, and a part of that is a thing called Rhythm in 20. And Rhythm in 20 gathers 20 young leaders uh, to go on a three-year journey together. And uh, long story short, I get to be a part of that and, and help facilitate those groups, and uh, the last group I helped facilitate, there was a guy from the East Bay who was one of the 20. And he was from the East Bay. So he's from California. So I'm already like, yeah, we got a California guy. Then I meet him, and I find out he's a vegetarian. He loves good coffee. He loves good beer. I'm like, this is a brother from another mother. And we have become dear, dear friends. He is, uh, like I said, a pastor in the East Bay, and he is Jane's pastor. So we got to know Jane because of my dear friend Dave Clute. And my dear friend Dave Clute is here to bring the word this morning. So please welcome (laughs) Dave Clute. May I pray for you before you? Please. All right. God, thank you. Thank you for Dave. Thank you uh, for the relationship we have. Thank you for Jane. Uh, And God, we're just thrilled that Dave is here with us this morning. I pray that you would speak through him, give him your words to say to us this morning, and may we experience more of your loving presence. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. One thing I didn't mention that I wanna mention, or maybe you were gonna mention this, I don't know, but something that I find really fun, like all these people in the band this morning, members of Bay Marin, they're, uh, so Dave uh, and Jane, the service they run at Open Door East Bay is 4.30 p.m.? 4.30. 4.30 p.m., so if you wanna go. Uh, but here, here's the great thing. Our folks from Bay Marin, in the band, are going to the East Bay this afternoon to le- be with Jane and help lead worship at Open Door East Bay. So it's fantastic.
1: Good morning, Bay Marin. Uh, really, really great to be here with you all. I've never been with you on a Sunday morning. Um, a couple years back, when you all were responding uh, to the Sonoma County fires, I got to show up uh, one or two days that week when everything was super intense. So I feel like I was with Bay Marin. Uh, when Bay Marin was being the church for your neighbors, uh, for your region, uh, for your area here. Uh, and it's really good to be here on a Sunday morning and worship with you all. Um, Matt, Matt stole my introduction. I was going to tell you that I met Matt in the mountains, um, but he already told you that. Um, so I got nothing. I got nothing. But, um, but I'm grateful to be here with you all. Um, you uh, are in a season of transition, and I'm, I'm excited for the potential and the possibility of that season. Seasons of transition, uh, sometimes we kind of like lean away because we want to kind of watch what's going on from a distance. Um, and I feel like at our best, uh, we lean into transitions and, and respond to what God is inviting us into and, and say yes to all of the possibilities of the potential of God at work uh, in a community like yours. So... Um, as we uh, as we jump into the scriptures this morning, I just want to invite you to take a big breath in, and one big breath out, and another breath in, and out. And as we breathe, remember that it is the very breath of God which gives life that's flowing in and out of each one of us. And Jesus. I pray that you open our ears, that you open our eyes, that you open our hearts, that you open our hands to whatever it is that you have for us this morning. A word, an image, an invitation, something that you're inviting us into, some some practice, some step, um, some direction that you are guiding us toward. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear all that you have for us, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, like Matt said, uh, you are in the season of Lent. At Open Door, we are also in the season of Lent. Uh, The church around the world is remembering the season of Lent. At Open Door, uh, we're looking at three practices throughout Lent, lament, confess, and forgive. So we spent two weeks in lament, and now we're spending two weeks on confession, and everyone at Open Door is like, Dear Lord, may Easter come soon so we can celebrate. instead of lamenting and confessing. Uh, But Lent is this season really where we kind of remember that apart from Jesus, we have no life. And if we have no life apart from Jesus, then we're dead. So, So Lent is a season where we remember death, and then we await, and we hope for, and we trust that Easter is on its way, that we're inching closer towards Easter. And at Easter, we celebrate a life that is stronger than death, a life that brings life out of a space of death. So uh, this morning, uh, our lectionary texts are turning our attention to one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told his followers. Um, It's a story that traditionally is called the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, And parables are stories that Jesus told um, from a slant, which means that it wasn't like straightforward or simple, uh, but it's there's a bit of a puzzle to a parable. There's something surprising or unexpected that happens when someone tells a parable, especially when Jesus tells a parable. Parables are stories told from a slant about how God works in the world and about what it means to live life with God here in God's world. What it means to breathe, to inhale and exhale the air, the oxygen, the life of God's kingdom. So this morning, uh, we're looking at the parable of the prodigal son. Um, And without even hearing the text, the the story is told from the scriptures, I imagine that some of us in this room have heard the parable of the prodigal son or are familiar with the parable of the prodigal son. Um, So I'm curious, and when I get curious, I ask questions, and when I ask questions, they are not rhetorical. So I'm actually looking for, like, Thoughts and responses back. What do you know about this story, the parable of the prodigal son? There's forgiveness involved. Yep. Who? Are there? Yeah. Yes. Yes. beautiful it's a story of a son who takes stuff from his dad and goes to a faraway country where he loses everything right and then he returns not sure what he's going to find but what he finds is a party waiting for him so like you know the major points of the story um, you've heard it. It's something that's familiar. Uh, whether or not we're, uh, we've, been, we've been studying the scriptures or reading the scriptures for however long, it's a story that we're familiar with. It's in like the zeitgeist of our culture. We hear the phrases. We hear the, the, the language used of prodigals returning. Um, it's, there's, so there's something we know about this story. And tonight, like tonight, see, I say tonight because I'm used to night church. I haven't been, I told Matt, I haven't been to morning church in a very, very long time. Um, so tonight, this morning... Um, As you hear the text, this story that might be familiar to you, I invite you to listen in uh, what details aren't familiar, what things have you forgotten, what have you not noticed before, what piques your curiosity, what piques your interest as you hear this story that Jesus tells his followers. And we're going to read this story in two different parts and consider how this story, this parable that Jesus is telling models and invites us into the practices of confession and forgiveness. So as we read, listen for pieces of the story that you may not have remembered, things that pique your curiosity, things that surprise you. So we're going to start with the first section of Luke chapter 15 and the first half of this parable of the prodigal son. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went, and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. So the story begins and the scene is set. We have a parent and two children. And the very next thing, the very next sentence is that we find out that the younger son wants an advance on his allowance. Except that it isn't an allowance, right? It's an inheritance. And we're we're pretty sharp. We know when inheritances are usually offered to kids from their parents. Inheritances are usually inherited after someone dies. So the son is effectively saying to his dad, when you die, I'm going to get some money, and I want that to happen Right now, I want that to happen today. Our translations hide this a bit, uh, but the Greek words make it really clear. When when the son says to his dad, Give me a share of your estate, that word estate could also be translated like essence of life or the, 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 the substance of everything that sustains you. Give me my share of that substance, everything that sustains you. Give me my part of that. And then it says, so the father divides his property or his estate or his bios, biology, life. The father divided his life, his means of existence, the very existence that he had for his kids. He divides it and gives half of it to his younger son. If you cut something that is alive in half, what happens? It dies, unless my my six-year-old son is like a a young entomologist. He loves bugs and insects, and he will tell you that worms have 10 hearts, and you can cut them in half many times, and they'll be just fine. Most of us don't have 10 hearts. So if you cut one of us in half, we're going to die. We only have one heart. So the father in this story offers his life because his son asks him to. His son says, What you will be giving me once you die, I'd I'd rather have that now than what we have currently. So give me half of your life right now, knowing what that is going to mean for his dad, knowing that that means his father will, in essence, die. The son asks his father for half of his life. So the son takes half of his dad's life, and he goes, and the, the text, the story says he squanders it. He makes a bad decision and then subsequently makes a bunch more bad decisions. And then after a series of bad decisions, something else happens. He hits bad circumstances, right? The the text says that a famine hits the land. Um, A number of years back, I read about this like global research study that had been done on this story that Jesus tells, the story of the prodigal son in a a global audience. And they they asked different people around the world to hear this story and then retell it to, to the same audience that they heard it in. And depending on where you were in the world, you remember different things, which is really interesting. So one thing that this study was showing is that for people like us, largely uh, Western type folks, 21st century Bay Area, people who live on the Western side of the world, when we hear this story and retell this story, we almost never mention that there was a famine in the land. We just like, that's like, It flies over our head. We're like, this is a guy who took all of his father's money, and then he went and spent it, and he squandered it, and then he ran out of everything, and then he went crawling back to his dad. But there's a famine in the land, and the text says that when the famine hit, this is when the son really started to suffer. This is when he no longer had anything left. But we miss that part of the story sometimes. To us, we hear a story about an ungrateful kid who squanders his wealth, and then goes home with his tail between his legs. But Jesus tells us that this guy is in a far off country. He's not at home. He's not in a place that he's familiar with. He's in a far off country. He doesn't have the right documents. He doesn't have a community of support around him. He has no buffer left. He squandered away the buffer. He has nothing left. And now, Jesus says, a famine hits. And now this guy is desperate. So yes, this son made bad decisions that wiped away all of his resources. Not just financial, but also familial, relational, social, political. All of his resources are wiped away. So when the circumstances change, he now has nowhere to turn. Bad decisions, unfortunate circumstances. So he hires himself out to a citizen. He's undocumented. He hires himself out to someone with documents and is sent out by this person into the pig field. And as Jesus is telling the story to his followers, You can imagine that the people who are listening to this story would have like looks of horror on his face because this good kid, presumably from a good Jewish family, is off in this far country and he's sent to work in a pig field. That's not where someone from a good Jewish family would find themselves working. They wouldn't be working in a pig field. So not only is this kid given his father a death, death sentence and then squandered away all of his resources, which weren't actually his but were his father's, now he's sitting in a space where a kid like him should never find themselves uh, in a pig field. So, so this kid has hit rock bottom by wishing that his father was dead, and then he hits rock bottom again by squandering away his wealth, and then a famine hits, and he hits rock bottom again, and then he's in a pig field, and he has really hit rock bottom. So after wishing death upon his father, he experiences three subsequent, subsequent deaths of his own, And finally, it seems, he realizes that he has nothing left. It's not just when the money was gone that he had nothing left. Now, after not one death or two deaths or three deaths or four deaths, but all of those deaths combined that he realizes that he has nowhere left to go. The death sentence that he spoke to his dad has finally returned speaking to him. And the the language Jesus uses, Jesus says, he finally came to his senses. Finally, this son came to his, sentence, his senses. Um, Robert Capon is a scholar uh, who writes about parables, and, and he says this about this parable. He says that repentance involves not the admission of guilt or the acknowledgement of fault, but the confession of death. Repentance involves not the admission of guilt or the acknowledgement of fault, but the confession of death. There is no life left on this path that this guy was headed. Everything good has been stamped out. There is no way forward unless this guy turns around and heads in a different direction. There's nowhere else to go. The handholds are gone. The resources are gone. His buffer has been wiped out. He has no one. He has nothing left. There's nothing left on this path. There's nowhere else to go. We started uh, with, a, with a breathing exercise, just breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. I want, I want to invite us into a, a second breathing exercise. So take a breath in, and then without exhaling, take another breath, and take one more. Don't exhale. Take another breath. Okay, exhale before anybody passes out, and inhale and exhale. As humans, uh, we do not have the capacity to keep on inhaling without exhaling. Right? Like you saw me, I'm like getting up on my tippy toes, trying to like stretch out my lungs a little bit more to like, can I squeeze any more air in these lungs of mine without giving them a little bit of room? No, I can't. I would have fallen over, it wouldn't have been good. We don't have the capacity to keep on inhaling without exhaling. We can't just bottle stuff up inside of us, it's not healthy. We know this intuitively. Our bodies know this. We don't even have to think about inhaling and exhaling. I I invited you to inhale and exhale, but you've been doing it this whole morning. You woke up inhaling and exhaling. Our bodies just do it automatically. We breathe in, we breathe out. It's a human need. It's something we need as humans, and our bodies do it automatically. Confession is also a human need. We can't just bottle this stuff up inside of us. It's a need to get it out, But unlike breathing, we don't confess automatically. So just like breathing, confession is a need. It's something our bodies require. It's something our souls require. But unlike breathing, we don't do it automatically. So the story that we're reading has not one thing go wrong, but a series of things go wrong. And humans can only carry so much so we can carry these things around and try to keep on carrying more and carrying more and carrying more like inhaling and inhaling and inhaling and inhaling without ever exhaling without ever dropping anything off or we can acknowledge these things that have gone wrong we can name these things we can direct them somewhere inhale and exhale We have evidence all around us. There's stories, local, global, regional, in our neighborhood, in our family life, in our friend circles. We have evidence all around us about what happens to humans who don't name and acknowledge when things go wrong. When they do things that have gone wrong. Things that eat away at us. We know what happens when we bottle stuff up inside of us. Eventually, it just, things burst we get calloused, we get weighed down and burdened. people get hurt, we get hurt. As humans living in the world that we live in, we inhale some pretty toxic air. Confession is the practice of exhaling the stuff that hasn't brought life, that won't bring life, the stuff that has no life in it, but has brought pain to ourselves and to others. Confession isn't something that religious people need. Confession is something that humans need. But like Jesus says, we have have to come to our senses. Finally, this kid comes to his senses, and he decides that he's going to turn around and make that return trip home. So confession is a human need, but it's something that we avoid. It's something that we try to push to the side. It's something that we try to compartmentalize. And I think one of the reasons that we avoid confession is because we are not sure what happens on the other side of confession. If I confess, what's gonna gonna be heard? What's gonna be experienced in this relationship? If I'm confessing to someone about something I did to them, what is their response gonna be? We're not sure how love can continue in the same way after an honest acknowledging and naming of something that has gone wrong. So instead, we just talk about forgive and forget. We'll just we'll like push it all to the side and assume, like, put it behind the curtains, put it in a closet, stuff it, stuff it, close the door. We're just going to forgive and forget. That doesn't work so well. I think evidence shows it, stories show it. Our, our, our intuition says that like, that just doesn't work. We can't just keep on carrying these things around. Uh, forgiving and forgetting just makes these like, hurtful memories stickier. It makes the hurt more raw. So confession is difficult because we're not sure what's going to happen. We lack assurance of what lies on the other side. We're not sure what happens when we come clean to ourselves, to God, to others. In this parable that Jesus is telling, the younger son has no idea what awaits him at home. Maybe he he has some idea of what might await him, and he's terrified of it. So he keeps on going further and further and further into this far-off country, further and further and further away from his family, away from his life, because he is unsure of what awaits him at home. Um, In our tradition as followers of Jesus, confession is always paired with assurance, Nobody's ever asked to confess without some kind of assurance on the other side. Over and over and over again in the scriptures, we are given assurance of God's continued love, even or especially after there's a transgression or an interruption in our relationship with someone else or with God. A death wish, a hitting of rock bottom once, twice, three times, or even four times. And the beauty of this story from the scriptures, the the parable of the prodigal son, the beauty of this story is that it pairs confession with the assurance of what lies on the other side. So we're going to pick up our story where we left off right in the middle of verse 20. So the son has finally come to his senses. He has the script of confession prepared and he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, "'Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son.' But the father said to his servants, "'Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead.' And is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Now, meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. "Your brother has come," he replied, "and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound." The older brother became angry but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I want us to imagine a little bit around this, this part of the story. Uh, I'm going to read the first few verses of this section just a couple of times. And I want you to imagine, you can keep your eyes open, you can close them, you can do what you want. But if you were there as part of this story, if you were an eyewitness or a character in this story, maybe alongside Of what's happening. What would you hear? What would you smell? What would you taste? What would being part of this story sound like? I'm going to read uh, the first few verses just a couple of times. Just think about those questions. What would you hear? What would you smell? What would you taste? What would this sound like to be present in this space? But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I'll read it one more time. But while the son, while he was still a a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. As I imagine myself like, witnessing that scene, I, I hear like, the urgency in the father's voice. You can like, see it, like he's like, watching, waiting, longing for his son. Maybe that's something he's done every day since his son has left. There's an urgency in the father watching, waiting for his son. And then, and then his, son, his son says something to him. And, and the dad says, Father, I've sinned against you. But the father doesn't even address him, address him directly. He's like, Sir, come on, like, let's get going. Let's get this party started. And I just hear like, the rumbling of feet and like, the clamoring of pans as like, people are like, I didn't know we were having a feast today. And there's, like, everyone's trying to like, figure out, where's that goat? We've got to get that calf over here. Like, let's get the food on. Like, it's just like a party. It's like a, a flurry of celebration preparation that happens. The father doesn't even talk to the son. He's just like, we got to get this party started now. One of the beautiful things about this passage is how it puts on display confession and assurance and forgiveness. But assurance and forgiveness are connected, but they're not the same thing in this passage. It's clear to me as I read this that the father has forgiven his son. Would you agree with that? The father has forgiven this child of his. But when and where does the father do this act of forgiving? When is the son forgiven? It doesn't really tell us, right? It doesn't really tell us. But I imagine, and I'm like interposing a little bit on on what I'm imagining in the text, I imagine that this dad forgave his son as soon as his son walked away the very first time. As soon as his son said, "'Dad, I wish you were dead, give me half of your life,' I think the father extended forgiveness at that moment. And ever since that moment, he's been watching and waiting and hoping for a feast, hoping for a party. He has forgiven his son, and he wants his boy to experience the assurance of that forgiveness. It's the very first thing that he wants his son to know, the assurance of his love, the assurance of his forgiveness. Through the warmth and strength of his embrace through the sound of his voice through the smells and sounds and tastes of a party the son doesn't return home to receive forgiveness the son returns home to confess and receive the assurance that he has always been forgiven so the equation that this story gives to us is not if confession then forgiveness but instead with Forgiveness guaranteed, already in place. Therefore, confess freely and frequently, trusting that assurance awaits. This story gives us no ifs, no ands, no buts. There's no negotiation involved in the son's confession. It's interesting, the first time the son is like rehearsing the script of confession. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, just maybe, uh, Father, you would accept me not as a son but as a servant. And that, that's the rehearsed, rehearsed confession that he has in place. That's the script that he has in mind as he's like moving from the pig fields in the far-off country all the way back home. Father, forgive me. I'm not worthy. Just just let me, let me do the dishes. Please, maybe maybe just never see me again as a son, but let me do the dishes. When the son finally approaches the father and confesses, he drops out that last bit entirely. There's no negotiation involved. He realizes that he's either going to be accepted back as a son or he'll never get the life back that he wanted. He can't just enter the story again in some other role. There's no negotiation involved. There's simply the son's confession and the father's deep assurance that forgiveness has already taken place. There's one last bit of this story uh, that we can't miss because it's the part that speaks to us and pokes at the parts of us that don't want to believe that this story is true, especially in our relationships with each other. Too often, we find ourselves in the place of the older son, the older brother, bitter, unforgiving, untrusting, exhausted from working so hard to earn and deserve and impress, and then frustrated when other people seem to get it so easily. They just get stuff handed to them. We hang on to that role of the older brother so often in our relationships with other people. So this older brother in his mind, his little brother ruined his family by essentially taking his dad's life away, by smearing the family name and leaving all of the pieces for him to put back together. Unlike his dad, the older brother uh, has has not extended any forgiveness. He is not finding himself in a place of compassion. He's not finding himself in a place of grace. His little brother had no choice but to wallow in the mud with the pigs. But the older brother has made a choice to wallow in a space of judgment and cynicism about what his little brother has been up to. He adds details to what he assumes his little brother must have been up to. He doesn't know. He was not in the far-off country. But the older brother's like, here's what he's been doing. He's been doing this and this and this. Here's how he spent the money. Older brother has no idea how his younger brother spent the money. He's adding all kinds of details that are coming out of his space that he's choosing to be in, a space of judgment and cynicism about his brother, about his brother's motives, about the conditions that should be attached to forgiveness, about his disbelief in the power of grace to restore, about his his reality, which looks out at the world and he denies any possibility of resurrection from death to life. This is the space that the older brother chooses to be in a space of unforgiveness, a space of denying the power to bring something from death to life. This story is all about the movement from death to life. The younger son wishes death upon his father. The younger son finds him in a space of death, not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, and then is received back as fully alive, a member of the family. The older brother denies the possibility of resurrection. Brian Zond uh, says this, he says, it's the lust for revenge that destroys our souls and keeps us chained in a devil's hell of exponential hatred and endless retribution. The only way out, the only way out of that is the imitation of Christ. This whole section of stories that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke is filled with stories of parties Jesus is hosting and being hosted at dinner parties, extending and receiving hospitality. Jesus is telling stories of banquets. He's telling stories of feasts. He's telling stories of celebration. He's telling stories about angels who rejoice in heaven about a sheep that was found. Like this is a section about parties and celebration and joy in the Gospel of Luke. And here's where this story just kind of fits in. This is not, the story of the the prodigal son is not a story about guilt. Or obligation or shame or regret or loss or scarcity or about who's the winner and who's the losers this is a story about freedom this is a story about abundance this is a story about grace this is a story about a celebration and a party this is a story about life and the kind of life that emerges from death the kind of assurance that we can have that that life with God is a life that continues on no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the transgressions have been, no matter what fill in the blank, the life that continues on in spite of all of those things. And this story that Jesus tells lays out a choice for us, a couple of choices. In our life with God, we are the younger child who has journeyed to a far off land. Will we come to our senses? Will we come to our senses and return home? trusting that, what's awake, that what awaits us is not shame, it's not finger-pointing, it's not accusation, but embrace. Will we return home? And in our life together with each other, will we be the older brother who sits on the sidelines instead of joining the party, withholding forgiveness until certain prerequisites have been met, until certain hopes have been hoops until certain hoops have been jumped through? Or will we lay down the hoops? Will we set aside the rules? Will we set aside all of our prerequisites and our expectations, our frustrations, our anger, and join the party? That's a choice that we have. May we, as people following Jesus, may we inhale and exhale. May we confess and may we receive assurance. May we be people of forgiveness as we have been forgiven. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a story that pushes, it provokes, it probably frustrates a lot of our sensibilities. It frustrates the equation uh, and the equations that we operate as we go about life. It, it, It pushes against the grain of everything the world around us tells us about how things should work. So Jesus, through this story, through the work of your Spirit in this space, uh, push us, provoke us, push us out of the stories that we are a part of throughout our week, and push us into your story, a story that finds life in, from a place of death, that, um, a story that there is nothing that can separate us from your love. Help us see the way, the path, into that story and guide us, Spirit, into that story of life, of freedom, of abundance, of assurance of your love. It's in your good name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Um, We're going to receive Eucharist. Uh, This is something you all do every week. It's something we do at Open Door every week. Eucharist means to give thanks. We give thanks because of the work of Jesus that has been accomplished on our behalf. We give thanks because the forgiveness of God has been extended to us even before we've come to our senses and returned home and asked for it. We give thanks because the work of Jesus was effective, it's finished, it's done, it's accomplished for us on our behalf because of the deep and abiding love of God. So as you receive Eucharist, you take take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. Uh, May you remember that you are a recipient of a forgiveness that has already been granted. May you remember that there is an assurance already awaiting you for you, but also for everyone else around you. May you be released. May you feel the freedom. May you feel the deep and abiding love of God as you receive the Eucharist. This morning, and this week, as followers of Jesus, may we know and trust um, that we live in a world not of obligations, of hoops, of guilt, of accusations, but of hope, of life, of freedom, of assurance, of a forgiveness, of healing not just for us, but for those around us. So this week, may we go and be people of hope, people of healing, people of forgiveness, people of freedom in the world, wherever we find ourselves. Amen? Go in God's
0: peace and grace this week.